You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, July 23rd, Washington Post columnist David Ignatius spoke with Ford Foundation President Darren Walker about his focus on the problems of inequality and racism in America and efforts to reimagine capitalism such that institutional and individual privilege cannot benefit the few at the expense of many. Let's listen. Hi, everybody. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Washington Post. It's my pleasure this morning to welcome to Washington Post Live Darren Walker, who's the president of the Ford Foundation, a $13 billion philanthropy. We're happy this morning to have a special opportunity to talk with Darren about the subject of race in America, and specifically to talk about ways that we might reimagine our capitalist system so that it produced greater racial justice uh, and equality in our country. I want to begin uh, welcoming uh, Darren and by asking him about a very uh, powerful and provocative piece that he wrote in the New York Times several weeks ago. The title was, Are You Willing to Give Up Your Privilege in the context of this effort? to seek greater racial justice. So let me begin with, with that question, Darren. Using the, your phrase as evoked in that powerful piece, what should uh, America, and let me be more specific, corporate America and white America, be prepared to give up in terms of power and privilege to make a better and fairer society? Thank you, David, for the invitation to be here. I believe that we are in a moment of reckoning in America. And I hope that this reckoning is a prologue because I believe that we as a people have come to the conclusion that racism is a challenge, indeed a systemic problem in America. The murder of George Floyd, I believe made deniability of racism, no longer an option for many white Americans. And I don't believe that most white Americans want to live in a racist America and unequal America, an America that does not provide opportunity and does not make the kind of mobility that I experience being born in the bottom 1% of America and now living comfortably in the top 1%. This ought not be an anomaly. But in order for that to happen, those of us who have privilege, and I have lived without privilege, and now I live with great privilege, have to ask ourselves, how is it that we live in a society where there is so much inequality. And the reason for that is because the systems and structures of our economy and our politics have advantaged some of us and indeed has compounded the advantage of the already advantaged and compounded the disadvantage of those who are disadvantaged. So the specific things that we have to think about are things like our tax code. We have a tax system that 
privileges, people like you and me, David, people who have income and assets. We have a system of admissions to elite universities that privileges the already privileged children of privileged parents at the expense of the children of working class, middle class America. We have a corporate system that privileges capital over labor and disadvantages that are near to workers are simply untenable and unsustainable. So we have to change the kind of capitalism that we have so that it produces more shared prosperity, so that workers, communities, and other stakeholders also benefit in the bounty of a company's profits. So Darren, let me ask you to uh, elaborate on that further, specifically thinking about the kind of capitalism that we've evolved and how that capitalism can be made to be a system that produces fairer outcomes. You mentioned something that uh, many corporate leaders have begun talking about, that corporations need to stop thinking primarily about shareholder return and have a broader definition of success. Is that one of the ways that we need to start reimagining? And talk about some others that may be a little closer to the bone, that may, 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 may make people a little more uh, uncertain about whether this is really feeling like a capitalist uh, bootstrap economy. Well, I think we absolutely have to put a nail in the coffin of the ideology of Milton Friedman that says that the only purpose of the corporation, of the firm, is to return investment to shareholders. That idea has done more harm, while it has produced great wealth and asset accumulation for all of us who have been able to participate in the stock market, which, by the way, is only about 10 to 11% of the American population. It's been great for us, but it's been terrible for average American workers. So we have to think not about shareholders only, but about what the Business Roundtable said last year in its statement, that we have to think about stakeholders. And those stakeholders are, yes, shareholders, but they're also workers, suppliers, customers, and the communities where companies uh, make their money. We have to also think about the ways that compensation of executives has been distorted by the policy, uh, the change in policy that has encouraged uh, the repurchases of, uh, of a company stock by the company. So in 2018, uh, America's companies spent over $1 trillion buying back their own stock. We no longer have what my grandfather benefited from. He had a third grade education. He was a porter and the shoeshine man in an oil company in Texas. But he was part of an employee profit sharing program. And even though he had a third grade education, 
and not much income, he got the stock of that company, which allowed him upon retirement. That stock and his social security check allowed him to live and his wife to live a life of dignity in old age. We no longer have those programs. What happened to those employee sharing programs? They went away and they went away for a reason. It wasn't happenstance. It was a policy change that we saw in Congress at the SEC that was advanced by the interests of management and elites like us at the expense of average, hardworking Americans. This has to be reconsidered if we are to have the America we want. Let me focus this on the most practical questions because the issues are so powerful it's, and it's something that we talk about, but it's, it's been so hard to make it happen. You serve on a number of corporate boards. And I, I'm curious, Darren, what you recommend to your colleagues uh, in terms of specific changes they can make, metrics they can adopt, ways they can assess whether they're changing, giving up some of that privilege that produces inequality in the ways that, that you think are appropriate. I think we have to move beyond tokenism to transformation. Because what we've seen mostly in corporate America is tokenism. And to do that, we have to start doing what we do in corporate America, count and hold ourselves accountable to deliver on the numbers. That's what corporate America does. So let's start at the board level. We have 162 of the S&P 500 companies who have no African-American on the board. I can assure you that those companies are not on board. They are not delivering on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We have numerous companies with no African-American in senior management on the operating or C-suite. This is a huge problem and it has to be addressed with real quantifiable objectives. And David, here's where it's going to get challenging. We're going to start to hear soon once companies make these commitments, and I'm encouraged by the number of companies who are making quantifiable objectives and targets, but we're going to start to hear about reverse discrimination, this pernicious idea that has been propagated by those who do not want change and are committed to the status quo. And we're going to have to take those people on and those institutions that are seeking to uh, impede the progress that we must make to redress the historic wrongs in this country and the real racism that still exists. And so we're going to hear, and this is where it's going to get uncomfortable to your question, we're going to hear about reverse discrimination that we actually can't uh, address uh, these uh, uh, challenges in a quantifiable way, um, and that uh, we have to find other ways. Um, this is what we've been trying to do for the last 20 years, and we are going to have to take this on, and it's going to get 
really uncomfortable. But that is what Congressman John Lewis always told me, was that in order for this nation to make progress, we are all, including white Americans, going to have to engage in the uncomfortable work of perfecting this union, of advancing the idea of excellence and diversity and advancing the idea of America. Because David, America is more than just a nation. America is an idea. It is an experiment. Unlike anything we have seen in the history of the world, a place where people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, races, tribes come together in one place and seek to have a just, prosperous democracy. That is the work that we all must be committed to. And making that happen in 2020 means that some of us are going to have to be uncomfortable. So, Darren, uh, uh, embracing uh, John uh, uh, Lewis's uh, wonderful phrase, uh, making good trouble, um, do you think that we uh, should be thinking about ways to incentivize corporations to do the right thing in terms of social and racial justice? That is to say, that there should be some organized effort among consumers, suppliers, the whole network of people on whom corporations depend to uh, pressure them in the directions that you're describing? Well, I think we have to incentivize the behavior that gets us the outcomes we want. And that's what happens in corporate America. So we should see compensation, bonuses, incentive performance tied to these specific objectives. Um, that's the way we're going to see change. That is the way we have seen change in corporate America. It's through incentivizing the behavior, the deliverables that we want. I think we're also going to have to look beyond just public companies, because there's a lot of conversation about public companies and public company CEOs. But we have to also acknowledge the role of private equity. There are fewer public companies in America today because of private equity. Many companies now have access to capital and financing. They don't need to go public. These companies number in the thousands and employ numbers in the millions. These are all privately held enterprises and they're off the grid in many of these conversations, and we need to put them on the grid, and we need to look at the reality of the, I believe, unjust taxation of carried interest and that impact. Uh, we need to look at holding those private uh, companies also accountable uh, and demanding of them uh, that they perform and deliver on these objectives as well. And we can do that because. Many of us are investors in private equity. Uh, whether you're a pension fund, an endowment of a university, a foundation, et cetera, we have some leverage in this, and we should be exercising that leverage. 
Let me ask you a, a, a frank uh, question, Darren. What would you say to the average Trump voter? And I'm just going to say that this is a, a, a white uh, male. I'm going to imagine it's somebody from one of the uh, key battleground states, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan. It's somebody who lost his job in the closure of a steel or auto plant who says, I hear everything that Darren Walker's saying, but I feel I'm the one who's getting screwed here. I'm, I'm the one who's, who's got problems with the system. How do you respond to that person? First of all, that person is right. So let's acknowledge that inequality has been harmful for that white man who is feeling economically insecure. The, the very things we are talking about have harmed him as well. And so what I would say to him and to particularly we elites and policymakers is that we have put in place the policies and the systems and the politics that have delivered us that vulnerable white man in Pennsylvania you speak of. He is in many ways a victim of a system too a system that has marginalized his labor and his aspirations. We have to realize something very profound is happening in America. For the first time in the history of this nation, we have a generation of downwardly mobile white people. We have never in American history had downwardly mobile white people. And this is incredibly, profoundly, potentially toxic for our democracy because white Americans, unlike African-Americans, white Americans have a sense of entitlement to the dream and have always felt a right to the dream. African-Americans have never fully felt that the dream was really for us because the dream has not been for us. Remember Langston Hughes's words in his great poem, Let America Be America Again. He says, let America be America again. America never was America to me. And what I'm saying is that white voter needs to understand that his interests are aligned with the interests of African-Americans and others who all have been losers in an economic system that has rendered too many of them redundant and unnecessary. And so we need a politics that responds, that responds to the aspirations of that voter because his aspirations are no different at this point than many African-Americans who do believe that we are and have been at a moment where we could dream. And the challenge for many African-Americans in this regard, and we're seeing it play out in corporate America, the number of my CEO friends who have said how shocked they have been to see their highly paid, successful African-American employees so angry 
so anguished and upset and bringing that to the workplace for the first time. Well, this is because in spite of the success for many African-Americans, it is still a challenge to live under the white gaze. That challenge is something that many African-Americans feel day in and day out. So, Darren, that's a powerful conversation uh, that I, I hope we'll be able to continue on many levels, but the Washington Post and Washington Post Live among them, connecting the downwardly mobile white uh, voters that you describe with African-American voters who, who have deep sense of injustice. Uh, that's a powerful American conversation. I want to turn now to the specifics of, of what you're doing at the, at the Ford Foundation. You've got a lot of money to work with. You've got a world of trouble to think about. Tell me how you've tried to take the Ford Foundation and make it more of an instrument for social justice and the kind of values you've been talking about. Well, Henry Ford, when this institution was founded, one of the primary objectives that he set out was that the Ford Foundation would advance democracy and democratic practice in the world. And I believe that inequality is a great uh, existential threat to Henry Ford's aspiration for democracy to flourish in America and the world. The social justice dimension of this that I have brought to the foundation is in some ways inspired by the narrative, the dialectic between Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller. And in Con Carnegie's great uh, seminal essay of 1889, The Gospel of Wealth, he described the obligation of wealthy men such as himself and Rockefeller. And that was to provide charitable uh, alms, to uh, provide the kinds of generosity that helped uh, the flourishing uh, numbers of, uh, of immigrants and poor people. And so he didn't challenge inequality. He said, we have to be generous and we have to take the bounty uh, that we have uh, amassed and give it away in smart uh, and charitable ways. In 1968, Martin Luther King also spoke about philanthropy, and he said the following, philanthropy is commendable, but it should not allow the philanthropist to overlook the economic injustice which makes philanthropy necessary. So King had a different idea of philanthropy. He talked about philanthropy from the lens of justice and from the lens of inequality. And so I've been inspired by that. And when I was lucky enough to be named president, the trustees asked me what would be different. And I said that I wanted to bring a more justice focus, a social justice focus to our work. And so the difference and why social justice philanthropy is different is that it puts at the center a level of uncomfortableness with wealth. And it asks of the philanthropist to consider the very 
injustice of the systems and structures that advance the accumulation of your wealth. And to interrogate that and not simply to just feel good. I mean, David, we all feel good when we write checks to a nonprofit, when we put money um, in the Salvation Army bucket in front of Bloomingdale's at Christmas. We feel good about that. But giving ought not to just make us feel good. We ought to ask ourselves, not only how can I help ameliorate the condition of homelessness by putting money, by writing a check, but we should ask ourselves, how is it that in the richest nation in the world, we have rampant homelessness across this country from coast to coast? What are the root causes of that? And social justice philanthropy gets at that. It asks the question, why is it that in our criminal justice system, we have such a level of it over-incarceration of Black and Brown people? Why is it in our system of education do we have neighborhoods with multi-million dollar homes and a mile away there is another school district that is poor where students don't even have basic goods, equipment that they need to learn? How is it that we live in a country that encompasses both of these realities? Social justice philanthropy is about engaging in the root causes. And those root causes are often difficult and are hard to engage in. But if we are to see progress in this country and if we in philanthropy are, are to do our jobs, we have to rise to the occasion. And doing that means getting uncomfortable as a philanthropist. And that's hard to do because part of philanthropy and accumulating wealth in this country is about insulating oneself and one's children and one's family from those realities and from the uncomfortable experience of having to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, are we Jefferson's meritocracy? Or have we been kidding ourselves as to who this country really has benefited and who has been left out and left behind? So, Darren, let me ask you a question that I'm sure that you've thought about. Uh, you mentioned earlier Henry Ford, your original benefactor, and uh, for many decades there have been allegations, discussions of Henry Ford's own history of anti-Semitic uh, writing. Um, and I wonder if in this era of renaming institutions that have problematic uh, histories, you thought of whether the, the Ford name is appropriate for an institution that's committed to social justice in the way you describe. Henry Ford was an anti-Semite and a racist. Henry Ford was also brilliant, one of the greatest industrialists of the 20th century. He was the first capitalist to name inequality as a problem for capitalism and for our democracy. And it is why 
he was the first to raise the wages so of his laborers so that his employees, the men who worked on the front lines could afford the products they were building. So Henry Ford was a complicated, flawed genius. I am able to hold both of those narratives. So I believe that as we reflect during this time of taking down statues and markers and monuments that are no longer appropriate, it is important that we as Americans understand that the duality of who we are as a people cannot be denied. And we must come to grips with how to hold both of those narratives. I once wrote a letter and I named, quoted Jefferson in this annual letter. And I said, Thomas Jefferson to his friend Samuel DuPont from Paris in 1789 said that the work of America is to build a just nation. Now, some people challenged me for opening my annual letter with that because Jefferson, of course, was a racist. I mean, he obviously uh, uh, raped, uh, as many, many uh, slaveholders did, uh, the Black uh, women he owned, which is, uh, to my mind, uh, uh, so odious and, and appalling that it's hard to imagine it. But that was the reality. But I want to hold Thomas Jefferson to his words. What he said to his friend Samuel DuPont, that the work of America is to build a just nation, he didn't do it, but he wrote it. And the founders, in spite of their flaws, left us the tools to fix what they did not have the courage to do. And so I am comfortable. I do not believe that we need to be named anything other than the Ford Foundation. Because without Henry Ford and his son Edsel and the wealth they made and the decision they made to give it away as a public asset, we wouldn't be doing the work that we do in the world today. So uh, Darren Walker, thank you for uh, a terrific and frank conversation first to last i hope uh, it's one of many that we'll we'll have uh, as time goes forward but thank you for being here with us this morning uh, for a conversation about about race in america thanks for listening to hear more interviews from this series and other washington post live programs visit us at washingtonpostlive.com